Chapter Seven of Thomas Wingfold, Curate, by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven, The Cousins. George Bascom was a peculiar development of the present century, almost of the present generation. In the last century, beyond a doubt, the description of such a man would have been incredible. I do not mean that he was the worse or the better for that. There are types both of good and evil which to the past would have been incredible because unintelligible. It is very hard sometimes for a tolerably honest man, as we have just seen in the case of Wingfold, to say what he believes, and it ought to be yet harder to say what another man does not believe. Therefore I shall presume no further concerning Bascom in this respect than to say that the thing he seemed most to believe was that he had a mission to destroy the beliefs of everybody else. Whence he derived this mission, he would not have thought a reasonable question. Would have answered that, if any man knew any truth unknown to another, understood any truth better, or could present it more clearly than another, the truth itself was his commission of apostleship, and his stand was indubitably a firm one. Only there was the question whether his presumed commission was verily truth or no. It must be allowed that a good deal turns upon that. According to the judgment of some men who thought they knew him, Bascom was as yet, I will not say incapable of distinguishing, but careless of the distinction between not a fact and a law, perhaps, but a law and a truth. They said also that he inveighed against the beliefs of other people without having ever seen more than a distorted shadow of those beliefs. Some of them he was not capable of seeing, they said, only capable of denying. Now, while he would have been perfectly justified, they said, in asserting that he saw no truth in the things he denied, was he justifiable in concluding that his not seeing a thing was a proof of its non-existence, any more, in fact, than a presumption against its existence, or in denouncing every man who said he believed this or that which Bascom did not believe as either a knave or a fool, if not both in one. He would, they say, judge anybody, a Shakespeare, a Bacon, a Milton, without a moment's hesitation or a quiver of reverence, judge men who, beside him, were as the living ocean to a rose diamond. If he was armed in honesty, the rivets were of self-satisfaction. The suit they allowed was adamantine, unpierceable. That region of a man's nature which has to do with the unknown was in Bascom shut off by a wall, without chink or cranny. He was unaware of its existence. He had come out of the darkness and was going back into the darkness. All that lay between plain and clear he had to do with, nothing more. He could not present to himself the idea of a man who found it impossible to live without some dealings with the supernal. To him, a man's imagination was of no higher calling than to amuse him with its vagaries. 
He did not know, apparently, that imagination had been the guide to all the physical discoveries which he worshipped, therefore could not reason that perhaps she might be able to carry a glimmering light even into the forest of the supersensible. How far he was original in the views he propounded will, to those who understand the times of which I write, be plain enough. The lively reception of another man's doctrine, especially if it comes over water or across a few ages of semi-oblivion, and has to be gathered with occasional help from a dictionary, raises many a man in his own esteem to the same rank with its first propounder, after which he will propound it so heartily himself as to forget the difference and love it as his own child. It may seem strange that the son of a clergyman should take such a part in the world's affairs, but one who observes will discover that, at college at least, the behavior of sons of clergymen resembles in general as little as that of any, and less than most, the behavior enjoined by the doctrines their fathers have to teach. The cause of this matter is of consideration for those fathers. In Bascom's case, it must be mentioned also that instead of taking freedom from prejudice as a portion of the natural accomplishment of a gentleman, he prided himself upon it, and therefore would often go dead against the things presumed to be held by the cloth long before he had begun to take his position as an iconoclast. Lest I should, however, tire my reader with the delineations of a character not of the most interesting, I shall for the present only add that Bascom had persuaded himself, and without much difficulty, that he was one of the prophets of a new order of things. At Cambridge he had been so regarded by a few who had lauded him as a mighty foe to humbug, and in some true measure he deserved the praise. Since then he had found a larger circle, and had even radiated of his light such as it was from the centres of London editorial offices. But all I have to do with now is the fact that he had grown desirous to add his cousin, Helen Lingard, to the number of those who believed in him, and over whom, therefore, he exercised a prophet's influence. No doubt it added much to the attractiveness of the intellectual game that the hunt was on the home grounds of such a proprietress as Helen, a handsome, a gifted, and, above all, ladylike young woman. To do Bascom justice, the fact that she was an heiress also had very little weight in the matter. If he had ever had any thought of marrying her, that thought was not consciously present to him when first he became aware of his wish to convert her to his views of life. But, although he was not in love with her, he admired her and believed he saw in her one that resembled himself. As to Helen, although she was no more conscious of cause of self-dissatisfaction than her cousin, she was not therefore positively self-satisfied like him. For that, her mind was not active enough. If it may seem, as it may to some of my readers, difficult, 
to believe that she should have come to her years without encountering any questions, giving life to any aspirations, or even forming any opinions that could rightly be called her own, I would remind them that she had always had good health, and that her intellectual faculties had been kept in full and healthy exercise, nor had once afforded the suspicion of a tendency towards artistic utterance in any direction. She was no mere dabbler in anything. In music, for instance, she had studied thorough bass, and studied it well, yet her playing was one as I have already described it. She understood perspective, and could copy an etching in pen and ink to a hair's breadth, yet her drawing was hard and mechanical. She was pretty much at home in Euclid, and thoroughly enjoyed a geometric relation, but had never yet shown her English master the slightest pleasure in an analogy, or the, or the smallest sympathy with any poetry higher than such as very properly delights schoolboys. Ten thousand things she knew without wondering at one of them. Any attempt to rouse her admiration she invariably received with quiet intelligence but no response. Yet her drawing-master was convinced there lay a large soul asleep somewhere below the calm grey morning of that wide-awake yet reposeful intelligence. As far as she knew, only she had never thought anything about it, she was in harmony with creation, animate and inanimate and for what might or might not be above creation, or at the back, or the heart, or the mere root of it, how could she think about a something the idea of which had never yet been presented to her by love, or philosophy, or even curiosity? As for any influence from the public offices of religion, a contented soul may glide through them all for a long life, unstruck to the last, buoyant and evasive as a bee amongst hailstones, and now her cousin, unsolicited, was about to assume, if she should permit him, the unspiritual direction of her being, so that she need never be troubled from the quarter of the unknown. Mrs. Ramshorn's house had formerly been the manor house, and although it now stood in the old street with only a few yards of ground between it and the road, it had a large and ancient garden behind it. A large garden of any sort is valuable, but an ancient garden is invaluable, and this one had retained a very antique loveliness. The quaint memorials of its history lived on into the new, changed, unsympathetic time, and stood there, aged, modest, and unabashed. Yet not one of the family had ever cared for it on the ground of its old-fashionedness. Its preservation was owing merely to the fact that their gardener was blessed with a wholesome stupidity, rendering him incapable of unlearning what his father, who had been gardener there before him, had marvelous difficulty in teaching him. We do not half appreciate the benefits to the race that spring from honest dullness. The clever people 
are the ruin of everything. Into this garden, Bascom walked the next morning after breakfast, and Helen, who, next to the smell of a fir-wood fire, honestly liked the odor of a good cigar, spying him from her balcony, which was the roof of the veranda where she was trimming the few remaining chrysanthemums that stood outside the window of her room, ran down the little wooden stair that led from it to the garden and joined him. Nothing could, just at present, have been more to his mind. End of chapter 7. Recording by John Sherman, Winfield, Illinois.